He was certainly great once. Darkness trembled at his voice in the ancient stories, but does it still tremble at him today? I wonder if you turn to the book of Esther, page 410 in the Church Bibles. Page 410 in the Church Bibles and the book of Esther. This is set just over 100 years after the Babylonian captivity of Jerusalem and the mass deportation of the Judean people. And in that time, whole empires have risen and fallen, but thousands of Judeans are still scattered a long way from home across a pagan regime, which is where we find ourselves in chapter one, plunged into the imperial court of the Persian Empire. Now, it was in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days, when Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he threw a banquet for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his pomp and greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a banquet lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl and other precious stones. Drinks were served in golden goblets, each goblet different to the next and the royal wine was lavished according to the generosity of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also threw a banquet for the women in King Ahasuerus' palace. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bithsa, Harbana, Bigtha, and Abagatha, Zathar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to display to the people and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure towards all who were versed in law and judgment, the men close to him being Karshana, Shetha, Admatha, Tarshish, Meris, and Marsana, and Memucan, the seven princes of Persia and Media who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. 
According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of the king Ahasuerus, delivered by the eunuchs. Then Memucan said in the presence of the king and the officials, It is not against the king alone that Vashti has done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all wives, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it pleases the king, let a royal order go out for him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. For the king's pronouncement will be heard, which he will make throughout his kingdom, for it is vast. And all the wives will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memucan said. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to province after province in its own script, and to people after people in its own language, so that every man should be master in his own household and speak it according to the language of his people. While you close your eyes and sink back into your chair as the ancient book is opened up and someone begins to read, the words swirl around you, thickening the air. And when those eyes open again, you find yourself in a strange and thrilling and terrifying world. How many of us will admit to longing as children for a magical wardrobe? I know one little girl who used to climb into the back of her cupboard and shout for Aslan. There is video footage. Maybe it will come out one day at her wedding. But we don't have a wardrobe, do we? Or a rabbit hole or a time machine or a magical mirror. What we have is an ancient history book, but one that the moment you blow the dust off the cover and open it up, pulls you into the most incredible story, dark, dramatic, full of heart-in-your-mouth suspense, and most of all, deeply, deeply funny. This is a book dripping in irony. We'll never know who wrote it, only that he is an absolute genius. This is a masterpiece of storytelling. And for the first two chapters, he is simply building the world that this book lets us explore. That very first visit to a strange and distant world, it always drives the story. Who will you meet? What will you see? In Narnia, it is a charming but clearly very frightened fawn, and that first encounter sets up 
everything that's to come. The book of Esther drops us into the glorious court of an ancient Persian emperor. The air throngs with exotic sounds and smells and with bawdy voices in a hundred different tongues. It's a world where the very sofas are made of solid silver. Even the toilet bowls seem to be mother of pearl. This is a place where all that glitters truly is gold. And everyone you see has been drinking solidly now for six months. That is quite a session. You look more closely and you realize that this is the kind of banquet where every toast is dripping in flattery, where every laugh is forced, every smile is rictus and betrayed by terror behind the eyes. We've woken up in an empire ruled by the first dynasty who could truly claim the title king of the world, the Achaemenids or the ancient Persians. They've swallowed up ancient Egypt, Ethiopia, the Punjab, mighty Babylon with all of its vassal states, Syria and Judah and Israel. Really, the entirety of the known world is theirs, except for pesky little Greece. And you found yourself in the citadel, the center of government, in one of its four capital cities, the ancient Elamite city of Susa. Well, the writer is going to make us wait all the way until chapter 3, until he introduces us to the real villain of this story and the crisis that's going to drive the plot, because first, he has a lot of world-building for us to enjoy. In chapter 2, we'll meet the two heroes of this story, but first, in chapter 1, he'll introduce us to the two major characters behind the book. The first has a name that is hard to say. If you've got an NIV, then just for banter, they call him by his Greek name, Xerxes the first, king of the Achaemenid Empire. The text calls him by his Persian name, at least how a Hebrew speaker would have said it, Ahasuerus. And in our ESVs, out of some inexplicable tradition, they write it the way Latin speakers heard it when they translated the Bible, Ahasuerus. A king so glorious, they name him three times. I will stick to the one I can pronounce, and we'll all get used to it. But as hard as he is to say, the major player in this story is harder to see. His name is never mentioned. His mighty deeds are never ascribed to him. But make no mistake, he is introduced to us today as well. It's not by accident that this book so famously leaves God out. It is part of the literary genius of the writer. He manages to make even more of his central character by going out of his way to hide him. When the characters pray for days, he'll simply speak of them fasting. When they're put in place by clear divine providence, destiny. He'll simply talk about how they mysteriously came into the kingdom for a time like this, this moment in history. God isn't hidden by the author to sweep him under the carpet. It is quite the opposite. It is a very powerful 
artistic choice with a powerful reason behind it that I think will soon become clear. So let's start to explore then, shall we? And the first thing that hits us in verses 1 to 9 is a massive fanfare. It's as if the writer is saying, behold, the king of kings. The year is 483 BC, the third year of Ahasuerus' reign, and he throws the mother of all parties, 180 straight days of drinking. Sure, there would have been food and dancing, but the accent in that banqueting word falls on the drink. First, for all the dignitaries and the military leaders, and then in verse 5, once it's all over, a week-long thank you banquet for everyone who worked in the citadel, from the civil servants to the gardeners to the cleaners, while Vashti, his wife, throws a similar party for the women. And the aim of this whole extravagant project is very clearly to impress. We know from the history books that in the year 483, this was exactly what he did. He hosted his vassals and satraps and generals from right across the empire to a massive war council in Susa with one purpose, to get them all signed up to his plans to invade Greece. Herodotus, the Greek historian, tells us that he was promising wild, lavish riches to whoever of these gathered dignitaries could stump up the best army. And so he needs to prove himself, doesn't he? Prove that he has the goods. The whole point of these 180 days of drinking is to impress on them all what the author wants to impress on us, that this is a very, very powerful and impressive man. From one royal throne, verse 2, he reigns over all the world, travel to eastern Turkey today and to the Armenian city of Van, and there's an inscription on the rock face of an ancient fortress, and it gives you a flavor of this man's words. I am Xerxes, the great king, king of kings. That was the title he claimed king of the provinces of many tongues, the king of this great earth, far and near, son of Darius the Achaemenid. And here's the thing, it was not an exaggeration. So what are we meant to think then when we explore, when we look around and see all of this extravagant power and wealth put on display? Well, first of all, I think there's the reaction we might not want to admit to having. We're trained to see an autocrat like this as the baddie. For years, most of our history came from their enemies, from the Greek historians. And the Greek speak definitely paints him in a pretty gruesome light. But there is also a Persian version of history. I've been loving a book this last few weeks that tries to give us that by a historian called Lloyd Llewellyn Jones. It's great fun. And the truth is, Ahasuerus was a deeply impressive man. He sat at the head of a deeply sophisticated empire. You see that all over the place here in Esther in the historical detail that drips off the page. Unlike the Babylonians or the Assyrians, the Persians never 
tried to impose their language on the peoples they conquered. Instead, their civil service ran a massive translation unit, and we'll see it put to work three times in this book. They were far more tolerant of other cultures and faiths. Cyrus, the great patriarch of this dynasty, had let the Jewish captives return home generations before. Then Darius had set them to rebuilding the temple, or at least starting. And so these Judeans living here in Susa, under his son Ahasuerus, have chosen to stay here. Because life here, at the heart of the world's pagan empire, has been surprisingly kind to them. It's not all like the Greeks would like you to think. So here's the thing we need to watch out for. My guess is that for most of us, this book is literally the only thing we know about life in ancient Persia. And so we might have a slightly crude picture of this emperor in our heads, I did. But what we're reading is not the Greek speak, and it's not the Persian version. What we're reading is satirical scripture. There's a danger that we read this very Hebrew caricature as if it were a bland documentary. This is more truthful than any history you'll read, but it's not written like an encyclopedia. It's written to show us a deeper truth. What this powerful and very sophisticated empire was really like underneath the surface and how to live in a world like that where God and the old stories seem like a fairy tale. When this book has us laughing, which it will eventually, we might think we're laughing at the kinds of things that all decent, enlightened people would find funny, but good satire doesn't work that way. This is teaching us to laugh at things that we wouldn't naturally laugh at. We might be cheering for this king. This is teaching to laugh at things that in reality, we would probably find kind of impressive. My wife has been talking quite enthusiastically about curtains this week. And I'm willing to admit that the level of detail involved in those conversations is very difficult for me to process. But let me tell you, it was nothing to the hour-long, I mean hour-long nightmare of trying to translate verse 6. Who knew that the Hebrew language had so many different words for the color purple or for different types of fabric or whatever porphyry is or alabaster and marble? Cornhill did not spend long enough teaching interior design. And that overwhelming detail is here to dazzle us. When your wife is looking for new curtains and you are no use at all and neither is your wallet, well, this king is the guy you want around. If we could just dig up one of his golden chairs that he bought for his guests to sit their bums on, that would buy us the finest church building in Edinburgh. Wouldn't you want a chance to be on the inside of all this? On the right side of the one who makes things happen. But there is a dark side to all this glory too, isn't there? 
what would all that extravagance remind you of as a Jewish Bible reader? There's only been one other king whose glory compares to this, whose splendor we were shown in the same level of detail, and that was the court of Solomon back in the glory days of Israel. And that, I think, starts to raise all sorts of uncomfortable questions. Why is it that a pagan king now enjoys all the glory God had given to Solomon? It's like we're living in the Messiah's kingdom, but we've slipped into the upside-down world, the netherworld. Years after Cyrus let Judah's exiles go home, there are still thousands of God's covenant people scattered across a foreign empire with no king of their own and still no temple. And God seems very, very far away. He's a God of the old stories. So far away that the author of this book never even names him. Was it all just a fairy tale? Or does he still care about his people? Who is the true king of kings today? There's a dark side to this man's power too, isn't he? Yes, he's extravagantly generous with the wine and he wants us to know it. But even there, it's all controlled and micromanaged. Do you see that? He passes a law, verse 8, just to say that you're free, not to be forced to drink. The first little flash of dystopian irony that fills this book. Picture a massive state gala in North Korea where everyone must have fun and be madly emotionally committed to the dear leader and enjoy themselves and enjoy his generosity or else. This man is so powerful that there is literally no escape from his rule. From India to Ethiopia, if he says smile, you smile. And so do you see how already the plot of this book is being set up for us? This is the reality that our heroes are going to have to confront when their story gets underway. They will face the threat of genocide to their entire people, and God, it seems, is nowhere, and this is the man they'll have to face, an anti-Messiah. Behold, your self-styled king of kings. But that's where the fun begins. How are we meant to think of this mighty king as we watch the story unfold? Well, out comes the writer's pen, and over the rest of his introduction, he works his craft so that by the end of chapter one, his pride is popped and his power is mocked. First verses 10 to 12, see his great pride popped. We're at the seventh day of the closing feast, so I should think by now that the king's heart was pretty merry with wine, and it's time to bring out the showstopper. What possession, what good does he still have to show off that could possibly impress this crowd of soldiers and politicians? Well, there is one boast left that proud men like to make. And so this king of kings snaps his fingers 
and seven castrated officials appear before him. See what a big man he is. And off their scent to fetch the jewel in his crown, his trophy wife. Because, of course, the most powerful man in all the world surely has the right to the most beautiful woman in the world. And notice, by the way, that what he wants is explicitly for his queen to be put on display for a mob of drunken men, wearing her royal crown, at least that's something, but you get the distinct impression she won't be wearing much else. She is deliberately paraded so that he can brag in his sex object. This is dark, nasty stuff, isn't it? True power let loose in sinful man. He's displayed his wealth, verse 4. Now he wants to display his woman, same word, because she is, at the end of the day, just one more possession. And then comes the humiliating blow. The eunuchs return, all staring at their feet and wondering how to tell him his trophy wife is refusing to come. This king of kings can control the lives of every human being from India to Ethiopia, right down to what choice they have in their drinks. But just when he most wants to show off that power, he's thwarted by one willful woman. And sure, he could bring her there in chains and force her to dance for them all, but that would only make it worse, wouldn't it? For all his power... The one thing he cannot control is the will of another human being. What he's been desperate to show off is that the most beautiful woman in the world loves to be in his bed. And the truth is, as everyone can now see, very few people love to be anywhere near him. Now, we've got to be careful here. What is it that's meant to disgust us? There's a lot, isn't there? Our sensibilities are very different to the author's, though. He's not writing this as a kind of Aesop's fable to warn against the dangers of alcohol. Sure, it shows us the reality of drunken, selfish men very clearly, but that isn't really the target. And he's not writing this as one of those little people, big dreams books that my girls love to read, to paint Vashti as some early feminist hero, Certainly, it shows us the reality of raw male power when it's corrupted by sin, but we don't actually know why she refuses to come, do we? She's been drinking now for as long as he has. Has she had enough? Is it one final insult to her dignity she won't stand for? Or has she just fallen out with him over something else entirely? The truth is we aren't told her motives. A lot of modern writers praise her. A lot of older Christians criticize her. Both are wrong, ultimately, because it's not the point. Esther, the real heroine of this book, is going to suffer all the same controlling behavior and objectification, but she will use her position much more wisely She'll actually achieve something through all that sacrifice for the sake of others. And really, all Vashti is doing in this story is preparing the ground for her. 
She's showing us right from the start that the might and power of this world is not as absolute as it seems. Under the surface, raw human pride is nasty and capricious and terrifying, but it can be popped. And once it's popped, it can be mocked, which is what we get in verses 12 to 22. See his great power mocked. And it's a wonderful scene, isn't it? So great is this crisis of a woman actually saying no to the king that they've got to convene a whole cabinet meeting of glittering experts to decide what to do about it. How do you manage a stubborn wife who won't perform for a nasty drunk husband? Well, it takes the seven wisest men in the empire who know the times to come up with a cunning wheeze. And notice how it's all dressed up in verse 15. We need a legal response to this outrage. There's a veneer of law and order about everything in this empire. That's how raw human power normally works, isn't it? We hide behind our authority, our position, our laws. But the truth is they are making that law up on the spot to flatter this king and give him what he wants. They want you to think that the law of the Persians and the Medes is fixed and absolute and unbreakable, but in truth, it's not really tethered to anything objective at all. And that's always when we humans are at our most dangerous. When there's nothing at all to anchor right and wrong, except for what the strongest people in one particular age want to get away with. And so Memucan pipes up with his brilliant plan, you're quite right to be angry, sire. In fact, this isn't really about your personal troubles at all. Don't you worry, sire. This is much bigger than that. If someone as marvelous as you can be openly defied by his wife, imagine what the rest of us will face. All of our wives will hear about this, and before long, none of them will be coming to bed, and the whole moral fabric of the empire will fall apart. And so here's our brilliant plan to make sure nobody hears about this delicate, awkward embarrassment of yours. Why don't you pass a law, sir, nice and discreet, and we'll put the whole machinery of the empire onto it, translate it into every language in the world, and publish it so widely that everyone from India to Ethiopia knows what a marvelous king and husband you are. She didn't listen to you, verse 20, but don't you worry, sire. Once you make it the law, every woman in the empire will hear you, and then all of them will be bound to honor their husbands. And the great and powerful king strokes his beard, verse 21, And he decides that this cunning plan sounds thoroughly sensible. I'll make them respect me by making it the law. And so he does notice exactly what he's told. Already, this is a very, very funny story, isn't it? Remember, this is satirizing a real, impressive, successful emperor. This is not the UK government, circa October 22, no. This is a man no reader would think of as a fool. 
but it's mocking something about even the most impressive and successful human power. Even he, ultimately, is a flawed follower of other people. And when he's angry or embarrassed or manipulated or drunk or under pressure, he will do things as stupid as pass a law telling women to respect him or else, which just publicizes to all the world, doesn't it, that they don't. He rules the world, but ultimately he is weak and insecure, the sort of person who tries to make a law for everything. And notice, by the way, that Vashti's punishment ends up giving her exactly what she wanted. She refused to come to that pig of a man. Now she's forbidden from ever being in his awful presence again. However will she live? <laughs> Here are the seven wisest men in the world and the most powerful man in the world. And you've got to wonder, how clever are they really? How powerful, really? Maybe the people calling the shots are actually winging it, just like the rest of us. And in the context of this whole book, this is funnier on a far deeper level than that, because this silly law at the start is like a little trailer, a prelude to the rest of the story. There will be two more edicts like this, sent out in every language and every script to every people and province of the empire. This one is silly. The next one will be very sinister. And the final one will bring great joy. This one sets the stage for the real heroine of the story. Let the king give Vashti's royal position to another who is better than she. There's a spot opened up. Now, they mean by better a woman who will do as she's told. But it turns out there is another king of kings at work in this book, and he means something rather different. And so nobody in the story knows it yet, but this drunken king's pride and his wife's stubborn response are going to be the trigger for a whole series of unfortunate events that will cascade through the next nine chapters. All of them will seem as utterly random as these ones that kicked it off here. A wife just happened to put her foot down for one mysterious reason or another. A king just happened to get drunk and lose his temper. But as the story goes on, it becomes more and more obvious that it is not just chance. Human power is not what it seems. And the true king of kings is not as far away as he seems. In fact, he's everywhere in this book, but only once you're in on the joke. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. Chapter one is a story of two kings, and we are very deliberately being invited to compare them, even by the symmetry of this big book. The book begins with the Persians feasting. It will end with a feast of God's people and with another edict, just like this, sent out to every living Jew that to feast once a year for all of time 
celebrating God's salvation. And that law, at the end of the book, will be introduced with the very same words as this one here in verse 19. A law that can never be repealed. So this opening scene is asking us readers a question. Which king really rules? Whose word truly stands forever? Is it the law of the Persians and the Medes? Or is it the promise of the saving God of Israel? Well, friends, we live in an age that looks outwardly very different to ancient Persia. But sometimes by showing us different, God has a way of showing us ourselves, doesn't he? We live in an age where God can seem very far away. None of us have seen him work mighty miracles or part a sea for us or fight with demons or speak through prophets or die on a cross. And maybe sometimes you wonder whether it is all just a fairy tale, something from the old stories. Is he still any use today where the culture seems so powerful and strong and all-pervasive and no matter what corner of the world we run to, we cannot escape it. Surely Esther helps us hope, even in a world like that, in a true king of kings. Not one who uses his power and his laws to serve his own appetites, but one whose law is truly fixed and wholesome and rooted in his own eternal goodness and love. Who else, what other king is safe wielding that sort of power? Not any of us, not this man, but there is one. Esther teaches us to hope in a king of kings who rules in humility, not in pride. One who shows his glory, not by taking advantage of a beautiful bride, but by laying his life down for an ugly one and by loving her far more truly and deeply than this man loved the most beautiful woman in the world. A king who did all of that, not drunk and numbed and debauched, but stone-cold sober, and all too aware of the dignity he would spend. Most of all, Esther teaches us that however dark and raw and persuasive human power can be, it is the people of the true king who will be laughing in the end. So don't take what human glory and riches and power are offering you. Don't take them. Because what are all the riches and praise of this world if in the end we're laughed at? We may not see him, but the king of kings has not abandoned his throne. His rule is as glorious and good as ever it was. So no matter what happens in Susa or Westminster or Holyrood, he is there watching over us in love. And one day, when we see all the ways he's been working out his grace and his faithful love for us, it will be quite the story. Well, let's bow our heads 
and pray to him and give him thanks. Gracious God, we thank you that the king of love is our shepherd. We thank you that when all of earth's proud empires have passed away, his throne will be as glorious and secure as ever it was. We thank you that on that day we'll be able to laugh with the true king of kings, even at the things which seem so attractive to us now. So help us, we pray, not to be swayed by what looks strong and proud and powerful here, but to boast in the one who rules in love. For we ask it all in Jesus' strong name. Amen.